Man Up, a program dedicated to inspiring and helping men live lives of heroic virtue. And now, it's time to Man Up. Welcome to Man Up on Iowa Catholic Radio. We are broadcasting on the Iowa Catholic Radio Network. I am Joe Stopulis. Today, I am joined by two of my good friends, John Wisniewski and Ryan Galloway, two guys here from Des Moines, Iowa, who have an affinity for the great John Sr. John Sr., who's an educator uh, in the Midwest, specifically the University of Kansas, uh, most prominently in the 1970s. And we're going to today, today start a, a series uh, on him, on his work, uh, on his philosophy, and what we can learn uh, from John Sr. We'll start in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and the snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits, who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, first two episodes we will have uh, with John and Ryan. On the first episode today, we're going to discuss, well, really, who is John Sr.? A little bit of his uh, biography, a little bit about him, so you can kind of understand who the man was, what made him tick. Uh, and then... We'll talk about the program that he, along with two others, created called the Integrated Humanities Program, uh, which is from the University of Kansas there in the 1970s. After that, we'll look at uh, one of his major writings, which is The Restoration of Christian Culture, a, a book that he published in the 1980s. Uh, and so we'll do that in the next episode. And then after that, uh, I will have on Bishop James Connolly from Des Moines, or from, Des Moines, from Lincoln, Nebraska, who was actually a student of this program. I was hoping to have uh, somebody who, was, who went through the program and whose life was changed. And he is one of the most prominent people uh, whose life was changed by this. So in a few weeks, I'll be able to have him on to discuss uh, his experience firsthand uh, with the with, with being in this class, with being in the integrated humanities program, uh, and the difference it made in his life. So stick around. We'll head to a short break, and we'll be right back. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio is provided by Dr. David Ball from Des Moines Eye Surgeons, your total eye care specialist specializing in cataracts and glaucoma care. Des Moines Eye Surgeons, 515-255-3546, dmisurgeons.com. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio comes from CTO. Your contribution to CTO helps families send their children to our Catholic schools who otherwise could not afford it. In giving to CTO, you receive the best tax credits ever. Pledge or donate online at ctoiowa.org. ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio comes from independent realtor Chris Foster. Chris has served clients with everything real estate throughout Iowa since 2019. 641-891-8178 or online at the number 4 saleia.com. Welcome back to Man Up on Iowa Catholic Radio. Excited today to be joined by two of my very good friends, Mr. John Wisniewski. Very good. And Mr. Ryan Galloway. We are here to discuss John Sr. I have talked a lot about John Sr. um, over the course of the last year as my life has been, uh, as anyone who gets into him gets swallowed up by the world of John Sr. So I've talked about this on the show and I've also then mentioned how I want to do a few episodes on that. So here we are today and people may be asking, why are Ryan and John able to join me for this show to speak about John Sr. So I guess I'll start with this, and then we'll get into the how, we're, how these next couple shows are going to roll. 
I want you guys to do a little bit about yourselves mm-hmm. and then how you found on John Sr. and like kind of what, what he's done for you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, my name is John Wisniewski. Um, I am the UFIDA male coordinator at Dowling. I just started in that role in August. Um, my first encounter with Sr. was in the summer of 2020. I was actually quarantining. And Father Reed Flood dropped off a copy of his book, and he said, you need to read this guy. He's like a cowboy scholar. I'm like, cowboys and scholars? I like that. So I uh, started reading him and couldn't put the book down. Just was really impressed with, with his pedagogy and his his life story, honestly. So I'm excited to talk about him. Uh, so I imagine, first of all, I did not know it was 2020. I, I thought it was before that. No. Um, and was it Restoration of, of Christian Culture that got you? It was Francis Bethel's book. Oh, actually, it was? Okay. First, and then I went back and read right. the other ones. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, uh, Ryan Galloway. I'm a convert to Catholicism, and I discovered John Sr. about 10 years ago. And for me, he was uh, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. He directly addressed some of the, the challenges that I saw in modernity, specifically with technology. And so I read The Death of Christian Culture, then The Restoration of Christian Culture, and most recently led a, led a class at St. Thomas Classical Academy on the, his book, The Death of, uh, the Restoration of Christian Culture. So his insights, um, I think, are, are second to none and really, really relevant to our listeners and, and to our culture in general. Yeah, so I, I'll go back a, a, a little bit here, Ryan, with you. I have, my wife and I have enjoyed your company so much as we've become friends the last handful of years, and I'm, and I'm realizing that all these things that have been eye-opening to me from your philosophy in life have been stolen directly from John Senior. <laughs> Plagiarized. <laughs> Plagiarized, exactly. Yeah. And, and for him, it's, it's, yeah, it's not original. I think anyone with eyes can see some of the things that he, that he brings to the fore. No, oh, yeah. yeah. And so you've been, obviously, this has been a big part of your life for some time. John, you got uh, to add some credibility here. Your thesis was on, give us the, the, yeah, the sure, very fancy sure. title of your thesis. Okay, so I, I did my master's degree in theology at the St. Paul Seminary um, in, in um, Minnesota. And I just loved his work so much, and I saw a lot of overlap with a lot of the stuff that I was learning in, in my classes up there. So I wanted to do it on, on him. Um, it was titled Nature, Technology, and God, uh, John Sr.'s Antidote to the Technocratic Paradigm, which is something that Pope Francis talks a lot about, actually, in Laudato Si. Um, so I enjoyed being able to kind of bring together different um, different sources, different thinkers, but really using John Sr. to address some of those problems. Good. Well, so my point on all that is now our listeners know that you guys know what you're talking about. So if I don't, <laughs> we'll see. I can at least fall back on what you guys are doing. So I, I think the way I want these next couple episodes to go is today we're going to talk about his life, uh, the biography of John Sr., who he was. I think it's really important to understand everything that comes afterwards. Uh, and then this thing called the Integrated Humanities Program. So we'll do that today. That is the program that he he and two others basically ran at Kansas, which is why they came to prominence. And then after that, I want to talk more about his philosophy, which is really outlined in the restoration, well, the death and the restoration uh, of Christian culture. So we'll start at the top. He was born in February of 1923. So I think he was born in the 20s in New York. So he he comes from a, a fairly upper middle class family, very educated uh, in, in New York City. And his dad was this guy who would do a lot of these things. He talked about how he was like the last vestige of the 19th century, how they would sing songs and they would play piano together and do all these things. The rest of the country was starting to get away from that. They, it was still very much a part of his life. Um, and he was, you said he was an avid reader. He wasn't overly bookish as a child, uh, but, but you know, grew up reading some of the, some of the classics and whatnot. I think one of the mo- most formative things that you need to know about John Sr. is at age 13, he jumps on a Greyhound bus 
going west and told the driver to take him as far as money would allow. Uh, and then was after a couple of days, he was on a road in South Dakota, and eventually he just finds his way to South Dakota and lives on a farm with in the Badlands with cowboys. Uh, and eventually, he says, you know, his, his parents finally track him down. He never really told them. So obviously, he's a little squirrely of a kid um, <laughs> to leave your, your parents. I mean, this is a lot worse than Jesus in the temple. This is significantly worse than that. And he takes off, and they finally find him, reconnect. And they kind of make a deal, like, listen, we'll allow you to do this thing where you go back on summers and whatnot. Because he clearly had this cowboy heart uh, in him, where he where he loved this American West, and I think, um, and I, there's a line here I'll, I'll share at some point, but just talking about the nostalgia of being with these cowboys and, and what it did for his life. Um, a- after that, he does end up going to Columbia University, where he is a where he one of the you know best scholars there, and all these things. So he has this really neat dichotomy of this rugged cowboy lifestyle guy, and he has Clearly, this incredible mind that can make it to Ivy League schools and go on. All right, fill in the dots there. Fill in the, the, the spaces there. What do you guys want to add to that biography I just threw out there? Well, I'd say he's from New York, but more importantly, he, he grew up in Long Island, which is the first suburb uh, in the American experiment of suburbs. And so he, he says repeatedly that to have an imaginative grasp of what we have lost, we have to look prior to World War One. So he was born just after World War One. grew up, his, his dad and grandparents lived prior to World War One. And what were the main changes? It'd be uh, l- largely um, the electric light, um, the steam engine, vehicles, cars coming in, and then a disintegration of community that resulted from the expansion of the city to the suburbs. And so he grew up in Long Island. He watched as, a, as the, the, the farmland around him got developed, filled in. He couldn't see the stars anymore because of the, the, the light pollution. So I think that was really formative. That's one of the, like, the instinctual reason why he ran away when he was 13. He couldn't... He doesn't necessarily explain it, but I think he talks a lot of later on about the suburban effect on children and their inability to see the stars. I think he experienced that directly. Yeah, he was <clears throat> very much a romantic uh, at a young age. He grew up on cowboy stories, and that kind of led him to uh, flee into the wilderness. And that was something that he continued to do, obviously, with his parents' permission um, as he grew older. Um, but even after um, he grew up, he would, I know there was one instance where he moved for a period of time to some mountain range in New Mexico and tried his, his hand at just sort of living off the land. Um, it's funny because he talks about all these things. He actually was never really competent enough to do it himself. He was a ranch hand. He tried to learn these things, but he was always very green. Um, so he never was able to live that way himself. Um, he was able to move out to the country a little bit and, and commute back to the city. Um, but that was a big part of uh, his story. He's definitely an idealist. And I think <clears throat> as we get into the philosophy, he talks about what the ideal is, though he never could ever live up. No one can live up to what the ideal is. But I think he – and we'll get into this a lot over the course of the next two episodes – that he would speak uh, of the problems he saw and, and solutions for him, but understanding that nothing's going to be – it's never going to be a perfect world. Right. Um, I, I want to get into the biography. Maybe one of you guys would do a better job of this be- and, because I know I'm looking specifically at John. He likes this stuff. Um that was kind of his biography up until uh, he kind of graduated from college, and then he mm-hmm. went into teaching pretty pretty closely thereafter. And he te- taught in the Northeast, and then he's taught at Wyoming, and then he finally taught in Kansas. So there's this obviously he's a, he's a teacher; he loves developing young minds. But but extraordinarily important into this biography is his his spiritual formation. Yes. So who wants? Do you want to run with that? Yeah, I can okay. take that. So um, he ended up uh, like you said uh, after World War II. He was. Um, in the military for a little while, never was deployed, um, did stuff uh, stateside. Um, actually, I think it was in interrogating German prisoners. Um, but he was um, dismissed and uh, ended up doing the um, GI Bill, was able to go back to school, 
at Columbia, which is a very good school, where he encountered Mark Van Doren, who is famous alongside uh, people like Mortimer Adler, um, Hutchins, uh, people, you Chicago people, uh, in the Great Books movement. So he encountered uh, Van Doren while he was there and was really influenced by him in a lot of ways. Um, he studied English, right? So he's not a philosophy professor. He's not a theologian. Um, English was his trade. He was very interested early on in his life with Marxism and Freudianism in particular. And from there, he kind of it, it changed over the years and was very much a intellectual slash spiritual journey. Um, he started to get involved in symbolism, which is a literary movement that's actually related to the occult, which, you know, raises people's hackles, I'm sure. Um, a lot of it is is grounded in Eastern spirituality. And fundamentally, it's about the main principle that he discovered was this principle of non-duality, basically meaning there's no distinction between subject and object. The universe is all one, one thing. Um, and eventually he came to the realization that um, there, fundamentally there was no distinction between being and non-being. And this is kind of something that you'll see in Eastern spirituality, almost this annihilation of the self. And through this, he ended up coming into contact with um, Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, sort of by accident, happy accident, you could say. And reading them was just like this light bulb moment for him where he really discovered <laughs> uh, what he would say is the real is really real. There are things out there that are not us and we can know them. Um, it's a sort of principle of realism that I'm sure we'll get into in the next episode. Philosophical realism that sort of laid the foundation for his his eventual conversion. Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand this guy was not just a cradle Catholic. In fact, he was really, really, really far from it. I mean, he was a about practic- as far as you can a, get <laughs> practicing Hindu, and then yeah. he eventually fell off that cliff and fell right into Catholicism. And then that's important because towards the end of his life, after Vatican II, he ended up like going into the, the Latin mass community. And I mean, he went way far into Catholicism mm-hmm. in the fact that it was, it, it was the truth to him so much. That was, that was what he was teaching everyone. And that'll, we'll get into that when we get into the, uh, the IHP. So anything to add to that before I head to the IHP? I think Mark Van Doren, he, he maintained a lifelong relationship with him as a professor at Columbia. Thomas Merton did as well. They both had Tom, yeah. uh, yep. Mark Van Doren as, as a professor. Um, and both ended up, you know, following the Catholic, uh, uh tract and, Whereas Mark Van Dorn himself was not. But this idea of the great books movement, um, it was, uh, I, I know Senior talks a lot about how the, the movement fizzled because our, the cultural soil couldn't yes. handle it. Yep. We can't read uh, Thomas Aquinas anymore. We're incapable. And he said even before Vatican II, seminarians were incapable of reading uh, Thomas Aquinas. And so the dumbing down of our curriculum has, has been a, it's an ongoing progress, which has not improved lately, but it's been going on for you know at yeah, least 100 I, years. I wish I had the quote, but I think it goes well into the IHP. You, you know, you're trying to teach them Aquinas, but they can't know Aquinas. They don't know. They can't read Shakespeare. They can't read Shakespeare. If they can't read this, they can't read this. If they don't do this, and they can't read that because they didn't read Mother Goose as a child, <laughs> right. right? So it all comes back to like forming the imagination, helping them understand how to read and read good, wholesome stuff at a young age, and then yeah. getting them to that formation. He's like, we've lost. All of that. He used to say, before you can read the hundred great books, you have to be able to read the thousand good books, mm-hmm. right? And that sort of uh, rich, fertile soil of, of children's literature, that is something that he really focused on. Yep. All right, so the IHP, uh, so it goes from, uh, finds himself in Kansas, and is introduced to, there's two other guys, Dennis Quinn and Frank Nellick, and these are the, the three guys who are kind of the triumvirate of this thing called the IHP, the Integrated Humanities Program. 
uh, at Kansas. So I'm going to go quick. In the words of Dennis Quinn, the program sought to, quote, teach the great books, the classics from the Greeks up to the Romans and through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance into the modern time. In addition to studying the great books, the students also got together for poetry memorization, the singing of folk songs, formal waltzing lessons, and stargazing. Activity of the founders thought to be one of the greatest sources of wonder. So a lot of people are probably wondering, could the, the books thing all make sense? But now we're kind of falling out of the way here with with memorization of poetry and folk songs and waltzing and stargazing. But to them, that was all. I mean, that was equally important. All these things are equally important working into in, in harmony to create this this whole person. And that's, again, kind of a high-level overview of the IHP. And I think there's this idea of he talks about uh, of having an attitude of inspiring with wonder and helping them to form their imaginations around this. And we're going to throw the word pedagogy around. <laughs> uh, he's your job of the vet to use the word pedagogy. Yes. But this is all really important uh, when we talk about why the IHP was so successful. The IHP was, again, at the University of Kansas, a, a secular university, and it grew the first year is a handful of students. By 72, 73, they're up to hundreds of students in this thing. And eventually it gets shut down by the early 80s because of all of the converts that were coming out of it. It became this huge deal where there was lines of people. And the success of this program would be seen by the fact that we had many people who came in as atheists or agnostics who left not only Catholic but then became Catholic priests, Catholic bishops, Catholic monks. Um, and so today, how many Catholic bishops? Two Catholic bishops? What's the, what are the stats? Catholic bishops – Five monks, all out of this program. Anyway, to me, a great a great story is that there was two two roommates who took the IHP, and neither were Catholic. Both became Catholic through it, and then became Catholic priests. From there, became bishops. So Bishop Conley from uh, Lincoln and Bishop Archbishop Coakley from Oklahoma City. Yeah. And that's pretty telling. That and that's why we read John Cena in the first place. He, he, it was his ability as a teacher, and 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 in a, in a secular university, University of Kansas. To have a, a program that did not proselytize, but just through great literature, truth, goodness, and beauty, had hundreds of converts. And I think that's so. The, the, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, why are we doing the show? That's the reason, right? Mm-hmm. The reason is it's called. So, the restoration of realism is this book that we that we're referring to. Obviously, what he did was effective. What these three guys did with effect. Now, part of it is they are incredible teachers, and any a lot of the reduplications of people trying to do exactly what they did is really hard because these are three incredible minds that happen to be together at the same time. That said, what they taught was truth, what they taught was beauty, and it and it led everyone to the church and in a drastic way. I mean, the idea that the monastery of Clear Creek is essentially founded by a lot of these guys through the class shows the the fruit of what the you know, what he was. What he was trying to plant, the soil was so rich that it just exploded. Yeah, I think um, part of the reason for a success too is simply the timing of it. I mean, you think about the late '60s, early '70s on college campuses, the sexual revolution, all of these different philosophical movements. There's a lot of confusion. Um, kids are flailing; they're looking for something. Um, relativism is in the in the mix with all of that, and what they provided was just solid ground for people to stand on. Um, and like you said, um, the the motto for the program was let them be born in wonder, which had largely been um, evacuated from education in a lot of ways. Um, and this focus on sort of technical training is starting to come in. 
they really try to counteract that and, and restore li- the proper liberal arts to to the uh, college curriculum. Yeah, just to give you an idea of how the program physically worked, twice weekly students would listen to the three professors discuss text together. So everyone had to read the text ahead of time, and they were encouraged to take no notes and just sit and listen to these three guys talk to each other. After that, uh, they would also then engage in discussions outside of class, uh, conduct poetry, uh, recitations. They took an immersive Latin class. So, you know, obviously fully in, but you're listening to these three guys talk and they wanted you just to soak it all in. This is from uh, Bishop Connolly. The professor saw that the modern student who came to the university might be very bright academically, but their memories and imaginations were so affected by the modern world. They were sort of bankrupt when it came to the imagination. They began to appealing to the heart and the imagination, and the students just responded. They were able to introduce these great ideas that colored and flavored the imaginations, and the students fell in love with learning and fell in love with wanting to know more about good uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. That's from Bishop Connolly. Like, it's exactly what they're trying to do. They understood. I think it was because of his previous teaching with students. I think he was so astounded by how all these kids had been drained of having any formative imagination. Um, and w- without that, there's no there's no soil with which to, to grow anything. College students, they're typically jaded. And, and, and so the motto of IHP, let them be born in wonder, which is kind of the opposite of being jaded. Uh, this idea of artificiality comes up repeatedly in, in seniors' writing. Artificiality contrasted to what's real. And so what's artificial is as basically what uh, the, the youth, the young, are just engrossed in. They're weaned on, you know, uh, artificial milk from the, the day one. And then from there, it doesn't, it, it's basically... Not one, my kids. No. <laughs> no. Uh, and really, we haven't talked about it yet, but at the heart of a lot of this artificiality is television. And I think he has just such, you know, a strong words against what television has done to our culture um, and, and, and the negative impact on our on the cultural soil and our ability to read anything written before 1920 because of all the biblical references and, and just the amount of thought it takes to to understand what the author's saying. His students were incapable of reading the great books, and so he had to, in order to be born in wonder, they really had to start at the the, the elementary level and read poetry and and children's rhymes and 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 do waltzes together, and then go out at night and look up at the stars because they never had never done that before. And so I think that the starting like. Starting at the at the most elemental level was necessary to to kind of rid yourself of the artificiality. Yeah, and I think for them it was as we're going to learn as we're talking about next time for sure is it had to be so drastic because of how bad I mean the medicine had to be really bad because of how bad the disease was. And I think we are and I I say this oftentimes with senior think of how much worse it is today. Right. today. right. And what would he be doing today? Because he was screaming at the top of his lungs in the 60s and 70s, where he had three or four or five channels, you know, radio. This is That was as bad as it got. And it's right. like, so to us, you know, we have to go back the opposite direction and push even harder. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. I want to wrap up on the, on the third segment, talking kind of some final thoughts on the IHP. And then we'll get together next week and we'll talk about the restoration of Christian culture. Sound good? Great. All right. Head to a short break and we'll be right back. The Catholic Morning Show. Let's go to our next guest, author of the book, Pray, Think, Act, Make Better Decisions with the Desert Fathers, Father Augustine Weta. The good news and the bad news is you really can't make a good decision. Either you're going to mess it up or someone else will mess it up for you. The holy, happy, wisest people I've known don't so much make good decisions as just make the best of the bad decisions they've made. The Catholic Morning Show, weekdays at 7, only on the Iowa Catholic Radio Network. 
Network. Support for programming provided by Trappist Caskets, a work of the monks of Numellary Abbey in Piasta, Iowa. Embracing an honest approach to death can more readily affirm the real meaning of life. Trappist Caskets and urns are made in the prayerful environment of the monastery using Iowa-grown wood from the Abbey's sustainable forest. Each casket and urn is blessed by a monk. Quietly laboring with their hands for 175 years, the monks offer workmanship at the pinnacle of woodworkers' craft, available for immediate delivery or as a part of a pre-planning program. Learn more at trappistcaskets.com. Welcome back to Man Up on Iowa Catholic Radio. We are discussing John Sr. and the Integrated Humanities Program. And guys, one of the things I wanted to mention is this is pertinent to Specifically, Ryan and I, uh, possibly John in the future, anyone with kids. Um, so, what do you know? What do you do now? You know, if you're, you're hearing about how bankrupt everything is, and again, we'll talk about some of this next week. But he was really big. The Greeks focused on what they called gymnastic and music when it came to the elementary level focus. And it, gymnastics really means uh, physical education, including both athletic exercise, military training, um, but also just getting out, getting out into nature, and being a part of nature and feeling nature. Um, and music was not just, it was all the things of the muses. So epic and lyric poetry, song, tragedy and comedy, uh, dance, playing of musical instruments, and then observing of the stars. So he was really big into the physical and the musical. And he talks oftentimes about how as children, this is what we need to be ingratiating these kids into this idea of you're out, you're doing activities, you're learning through touching, you're learning through the better way, the best way to learn about a frog is to be with a frog and to touch the frog before you're ripping it open and looking inside of it. You should be knowing how a frog is a frog, those types of things. So that's why I know you guys are similar. Like we're out in nature a lot. We like the kids being out there. Uh, and then also the musical mind, uh, which we can talk about next year, next week, how he, we've destroyed the musical mind as well. Um, not just phys- in, in actual music, but in all aspects of, of poetry and music and literature and whatnot. Go nuts. Yeah, so um, something that he talks about, one of my favorite quotes from him, and I think this gets to the heart of, of what you're saying, Joe. Uh, he says, quote, There is no amount of reading, remedial or advanced, no amount of study of any kind that can substitute for the fact that we are a rooted species, rooted through our senses in the air, water, earth, and fire of elemental experience. So he talks about the fact that gymnastics, right? He, uh, the Greek word hymnos, gymnos, uh, means naked, right? So he's talking about being in naked contact with the world around us. And that is such an important part of his own pedagogy with the students and something that we would obviously want to embody in, in our educational model as well. He talks to the poor little suburban kid who's driven in an air-conditioned car, you know, from one activity to the next. And and then he's driven to the planetarium where he looks up and, and develops this odd sentiment that behold the glory of man. Because it, uh, those are the only stars he's ever seen. So I think this idea of, of what is real and, and, and children are not being exposed to it through their gymnastic. He, he's actually quite derogatory on basketball, which I, I quite like as a sport. Um, <laughs> with this, this ancient game of throwing a ball through a hoop. And here we create like leagues and professional sports. And then we have our own team that we, that we follow as if it's real. That, uh, you know, that the, as much as I like the Iowa Hawkeye basketball team, it's not real. They don't know who I am. They don't care if I would die tomorrow. The Iowa Hawkeye basketball team doesn't care about me. It's not real. Um, but he advocates for this idea of if you like basketball, you should go play the sport. And the same for kids. Like these, the, the making leagues on – he doesn't address this necessarily, but on Sunday mornings. We, we've, we've made a, a, this false idol out of these activities for kids, which aren't real. And we're taking the fun out of it. But that's yeah. a separate thing. All right. <laughs> this is a great first uh, primer into John Sr. Uh, again, I think I have – I know in the last two years that I've really dove into him and gotten to meet people like yourselves – 
uh, it's really changed my view on, on so many things. Um, so thank you guys for joining me, and thank you all for listening. Uh, I am Joe Stopulus. It's time to man up. Man up, inspiring men to live out their call to holiness. 